0: Does anyone have any questions today? Already? Um, The full moon, the new moon and the half moon days according to the lunar calendar. So the half moon is like after eight days after the full moon or the new moon there's a half moon day. So it's roughly four days a month. And since the time of the Buddha, it's a time people come to the monastery, listen to the Dhamma, make offerings, uh, practice meditation, keep the precepts. Uh, sometimes they don't have the chance to go to the monastery, so they'll do it at home. But it's a way, it's an equivalent of the Christian calendar, the Sunday. That Sunday is originally the day you stop work and go to church. It's the same kind of idea. You you go into the temple, monastery, and uh, practice Dhamma for a day, set aside your other duties. So also for monks, it's uh, the way we measure time. So we have the lunar calendar. <coughs> so on full moon day and new moon day, we call that uposata. Uposata refers to our... Well, literally, the, the, the building that we ordain in as monks is called an Hall, and it's a place where <coughs> monks carry out their different um, ceremonies and procedures. So, every 15 days, we'll recite our rules of practice. It's called the Patimoka, and that's every new moon, every full moon. That will be recited, so there's a special ceremony for that. All the monks gather in the hall, and during that ceremony they can't go anywhere. They have to sit and listen to the recitation, and one of the monks has to recite the rules. And we do it from memory. We don't read it. So one monk will chant for about 45 minutes or so, all the rules, and another monk will check that he's chanting correctly and correct him if he gets it wrong. So that way we are always coming, referring back to our rules of practice, the patimokha discipline, the training rules, at least every two weeks. It's a reminder. We keep the rules every day, but if you chant them every two weeks, it makes your memory of them and your practice of them stronger. And also on that day we um, have a little ceremony where we say, um, <coughs> we confess or reveal any transgressions or offences against our discipline. So say we mistakenly or unmindfully did something, like maybe, you know, perhaps you, example, uh, maybe ate some food after midday without realising, and then you realise, oh, I was eating, it was after midday, I've made an offence. So you confess that offence to another monk on this Patimoka day, every two weeks. Um, But we confess our offences even if we haven't... mm, we're not sure that we've made any transgressions, we haven't done anything wrong. We still do it as a good habit, just in case. The Buddha actually wanted lay people to do this. Not in such a formal way. Like monks, we do it formally in a ceremony every two weeks and that makes us very mindful of our rules and we're always correcting ourselves, improving ourselves because we we um, have to bring up any offence that we've made any any mistake, any wrongdoing for lay people it's a bit vaguer you don't have a formal ceremony but the idea is the same the Buddha wanted us to have trusted friends what we call Kalyanamita. Good friends, trusted friends who understand dhamma, understand the practice. And if you one day you realise you've done something wrong, made a mistake, and you're clear on that, maybe you go to your trusted friend and you reveal to them. You say, "Look, I did this wrong. I just want to tell someone, reveal it. You could say confession, but that's a Christian term, so sometimes it, there's misunderstanding, but." reveal it to a friend, and they'll, if they're a trusted friend, one, they won't use it against you, they won't go and gossip about you and say, oh, you know what she did, (laughs) but they'll give you the right um, response. Your trusted friend will say, oh, so you're now mindful that you told a lie or you killed some ants or, you know, you did something that you realize later was a transgression of your precepts. You go to your friend and you say, I did this. And your friend will say, well, I'll try to be more mindful in the future and don't do it again. <laughs> and then will say, do you understand where you went wrong? And your friend says that, you say, yeah, I understand where I went wrong and now I'm going to make sure I don't make that mistake again. So you keep improving yourself, becoming more mindful of your precepts, maybe five precepts, eight precepts. So trusted friends are very helpful it could be a teacher it could be a monk or a nun it could be a lay lay friend who you trust who's got experience in the dhamma and you let them know and they'll give you some advice maybe how to deal with that particular um kilesa or mental defilement that led you to break your precept so Say you were, you, know, you were careless and you started killing some ants or mosquito or something. You know, maybe they'll encourage you to practice more patience, be mindful, be more compassionate to creatures. and so on. They'll give if it's a trusted friend, they'll give you some good advice at that time. So you can actually practice very similar to the way the monks do it. Uh, it's just nowadays you know everyone's forgotten this or they they've got they're so busy that they don't think about this but this is the way to improve yourself actually become mindful of your mistakes nowadays in our society we don't like to admit mistakes because then people start blaming us or they they say oh you made a mistake you know you've got to take responsibility and people love to you know, blame others so they can feel better and push the blame away from themselves. But actually, it's useful for us to learn from our mistakes. Sometimes we have to be honest and say, oh, I made this mistake. And if the people around us are thinking straight, they should say, oh, it's good, you know you've made a mistake, now you can learn and improve. But often, unfortunately, uh, you know, out there in the world, so you've got your work. You know, people are trying to hide their mistakes all the time, and so often they don't learn very well because it's more about keeping up your impressions or impress your boss or your clients or the public. Uh, so that that's a weakness in our society now is that we we don't value learning from mistakes so well. You know, we don't. We don't have a good mechanism for that, so medical you know, saying medical profession, you know, what doctor is going to admit that they've made a mistake is very risky because then you might get sued or there'll be some problem, so they're always trying to cover themselves, which is understandable, but in terms of learning, it's maybe not the best way, is it? You know, sometimes we have to be honest and value honesty so that we can grow, make, get, get beyond our mistakes. We're also always trying to be perfect. Everyone wants to be perfect, so we don't like to admit mistakes. (laughs) But mistakes can be useful. You make a mistake, it shows you're trying. You're putting effort in. Okay, you made a mistake, well you can learn from that and move on, change what you did, grow, become wiser from it. if we never make mistakes or never admit mistakes, then it's like you can't grow, and you can't learn. So observance day is a bit like that. It's a, a day for you to review your sila, five precepts, eight precepts, uh, to keep it obviously and review it if you have made mistakes or wrongdoings before, to reboot your mind, so you're going to keep the precepts more strictly from now on. And then also practice meditation. So Ajahn Chah would have people come into the monastery and they would practice all night. When I first went to Thailand we would <coughs> stay up all night on the full moon night, the new moon night. And people would come in, they'd been working all day, and then they'd come into the monastery and they'd do the evening chanting, and listen to a talk and meditate right through till the morning and some people the strong ones would even go off and work again the next day quite amazing so it's like that commitment to the practice you use the lunar calendar just to help re-establishing your commitment to practice keep coming back to the practice very hard to find people willing to stay up practicing all night maybe once a year on new year's eve they do it but to do it once a week when i was a young man we did it once a week so when it comes to observance day it's like oh i gotta stay up all night tonight <laughs> so it makes you really mindful of that you have to really try mm-hmm. and again in the early days there is quite strict so Monks might get a bit weak, you know, about midnight 1 a.m., feeling really exhausted, so they sneak off somewhere. And the rule was you're not allowed to go back to your hut because you're asleep. So a monk might be sneaking off, going back to his hut. Then meet another senior monk on the path, and they go, Where are you going? You have to have a good excuse. So, they would allow you to lean against a tree. If you're really exhausted, you just go outside, lean against a tree, have a bit of a rest, lean against a tree for a while, and then you come back in. There's good practice, gets everyone very committed to meditation, doing the practice, keeping the precepts. And you do it over and over and again, and you get good at it. Why is our meditation only you know, partially, sometimes peaceful, sometimes not. We don't do it enough, basically. We don't have enough mindfulness (coughs) yet. We need to do more, practice more. When you practice on the observance day overnight, it's very good because you experience things you haven't normally experienced. So you're working with your sleepiness you know, at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, your mind says time for bed. But you're saying, no, I'm not going to lie down tonight. I'm going to carry on meditating. or Sometimes there'll be a Dhamma teaching as well. You can listen to the talk. You have to work with your sleepiness, your laziness. You have to learn how to sit up when you're falling asleep. If you're really falling asleep, well, you can go out and walk meditation. Freshen up. Wake up, and then you come back in, and you carry on sitting. Some monks got so tired, they're sitting, and they start nodding, and they're on the, you know, the raised seat. After a while, they fall and they fall off the raised seat onto the floor. <laughs> it could be a little bit of pain, but they wake up then. In the early days when the monastery was very quiet, and there's only a few monks. You'd be sitting, you know, like 1 am, everyone's sitting there working away, trying not to fall asleep. Maybe a snake would come in. You get various animals, creatures, snakes come into the hall, because it's right in the forest and there's no windows, it's just open sided, so you're sitting there. One time a cobra came in and came crawling in past the monks. So a couple of monks saw it, ah! and woke up very quickly and moved off. And there was one monk who used to be a hunter. So when the snake came in, when the, when the other monks were getting upset, the snake went up like this, the cobra went up like this. The monk who was a hunter, he saw the snake and he wasn't scared of it. He just grabbed it by the neck and threw it out <laughs> behind him, ejected him from the hall. <laughs> so when there's a cobra around, no one falls asleep. He become very awake. <laughs> or, oh, one year we had a civet cat. Civet cat. Uh, they're kind of like bigger than an ordinary cat, but they're not a tiger. They're kind of a cross between a tiger and a domestic cat. They're just sort of slightly bigger than a domestic cat. And he was lonely, so he would come in on the <coughs> on the night when we had the all night sit. And he'd just come and sit with the monks and just curl, coil up, curl up, and sit with, you, with us just because he was lonely. <laughs> but when I went to Thailand on the observance day, like maybe 60, 70 of the villagers would come into the monastery, and a lot of them were older people, so like maybe. 50, 60, even 70 years old. A lot of them are like grannies. All the monks are like in their 20s or 30s, quite young, strong, healthy. But we're not used to sitting up all night. So I used to watch them and say, if they can do it, I should be able to do it. I'm young and strong, I should be able to do it. But you know, after an hour or two, I'm going, like, oh, this is so difficult. My legs hurt, I'm tired. But the grannies can sit all night straight. Very tough. So I used to think, why can they do it like that? It's because they have faith. Satha. When you have faith, you get energy. You try. Doesn't mean to say you're know, anything special, but you just have faith in the Buddha, in Ajahn Chah, you have faith in the practice. So they, they knew what they're doing is very good because they have faith making good karma, making merit so they could sit all night if they wanted to just go into their posture <laughs> if they had a if they are feeling sleepy they go to the kitchen and eat betel nut <laughs> we had one rule is you can't eat your beetle nut in the sala because if you eat betel nut you get all this red juice and then they spit it out but it goes all over the floor Makes a mess. So if you if you want betel nut, you have to go to the kitchen, have your betel nut and then come back. But they'd have their betel nut and then they'd feel energized again and then they come back and sit for a few more hours. <laughs> so very impressive. So when you see the grannies can do that, you think, hmm, I'm this young guy, I've got to learn to do this. Because if they can do it, I, I have to. So we help each other that way. When you have a big group meditating, Maybe you get weak and you think, Oh, I can't do it anymore. I can't sit anymore, I'm tired or my legs hurt. But then you look at other people doing it, you say, Okay, they can do it. I'm going to do it. You get more energy that way. So sort of like everyone supports each other. Does anyone have any questions?
1: Yeah.
0: Well, <clears throat> one, we can't be absolutely sure why because we're not there in the cultural conditions, society, and that was probably a lot different than today. So, can't be absolutely sure, but from historically, what we know is that the position of women in India when the Buddha was practicing... <coughs> They, uh, the Buddha felt that they would be if they were ordained, they would be at risk sometimes because you know monks and nuns live out in the forest. Uh, in those days, not much government, not you know, police, law and order was not there, so he felt they would be at risk, um, and he didn't want, want to put people at risk. Uh, he never said women can't practice the Dhamma or can't become enlightened, but the actual institution of becoming a nun he didn't rush to do that because of these various cultural issues you know maybe views in the society at the time that the views again of, uh, of, of, about women various things like this he probably was concerned that there would be issues by ordaining women but he didn't um, not ordain them he did eventually after being requested but he was just cautious and pointed out some of the dangers. So that was in the rules of the bhikkudis. He's saying, well, oh, should stay close to the monks, receive teachings and not travel alone and so on <coughs> to protect them. So his thoughts were only compassionate. Um, then, historically, over the years, the bhikkudi order disappeared. It was last known, the Theravada Bhikkhuni order, Not the Mahayana one, which continued, but the Theravada order disappeared in Sri Lanka. And for, until recent times, the view has been that you can't re-establish that order because certain factors that are required to ordain bhikkhunis are no longer fulfilled because you haven't got an existing bhikkhuni order to carry on. Once they've gone, then you can't restart unless you're the Buddha and the Buddha's not here. So partly out of respect for the Buddha, partly out of respect for Vinaya, uh, many of those Theravada Buddhist countries have not ordained bhikkhunis. But it doesn't mean you say they haven't ordained nuns. They have, like, Thailand has tens of thousands of nuns, um, usually white-robed, but sometimes in brown. And some of those nuns have become enlightened, so, until more recent years, uh, if you already have an institution of nuns available, which they do, and those nuns have been coming enlightened, which they do occasionally, <coughs> then I think they felt that was good enough. And those who want to practice could. Uh, usually, eight precept nuns, sometimes, ten precept nuns. Uh, usually associated with monasteries, with teachers, bhikkhus, monks. And got very good results. And I've met some very well-practiced nuns in Thailand. There, there have been some and there still are. But now society is changing, isn't it? So now this, uh maybe politics has brought um, different views into it. So now people are talk a lot more about feminism, women's rights. So, they're looking, perhaps looking more on the surface, superficially, that, well, women should have equal opportunity to ordain just as men should have bhikkhunis again. So, the traditionalists, the conservatives might be saying, well, we understand that thought, but if the Buddha is not alive, we can't start something which requires the Buddha and a living bhikkhuni sangha to do. Others have other reasons. They say you can start. There's been a lot of debate about this. And, uh, you know, in the end, it's a personal choice of the the women practitioners where they want to ordain. You can still ordain in Thailand and follow the more traditional Thai nun system. Or you can go Mahayana, Bhikkhuni uh, system in Taiwan, Korea or now there are bhikkhunis being ordained in Sri Lanka and they've come out and are spreading around the world as well so they're really up to the individual to choose and you know I've never met a single monk who said women shouldn't ordain or shouldn't be nuns but there's a choice and, and you also have to respect monks who don't feel they want they can do something that is outside of the Vinaya as they understand it. So some monks themselves will not ordain Bhikkhunis. it doesn't mean to say they're against Bhikkhunis or don't like Bhikkhunis or they're against women. They're just respecting the Vinaya as they understand it. So in Thailand, you know, the nuns there get plenty of support from monks, nuns and lay people and as I said, there's tens of thousands of nuns practicing in Thailand, as there are in you know, Burma, Sri Lanka, other Buddhist countries. So it's really a choice thing now. Nowadays, we do have choices opening up. It's up to the individual. I'd say the most important thing is if you're going to ordain, you do it <laughs> properly. You know, when you ordain, you should go somewhere where you have a good teacher, a good place to train. So, you're trained properly. If you're doing it properly for practicing to realize Nibbana, following the Buddha, you want to get the best training. So, you want to go somewhere where there's a good teacher, a system of practice, a system of training, uh, and then really give up to that system and do it. And that's the key, whether you're a monk or want to be a monk or a nun, it's the same. What people. You know, in our day and age, they try this and they try that, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But people don't really commit very much. Um, you know, very few people do become monks and nuns. Most Buddhists may go and stay in a monastery, do retreats and so on, but most people don't really commit to the point of becoming a monk or a nun. Even if you become a monk or a nun, people often try this place for a while and then they try that place for a while. Very hard to find someone who really kind of gets down to the practice and just keeps doing it and they have a teacher they respect and they just give up to the teacher and the the sangha training and just do it. There are very few who do that. So, you know, as I said, the opportunities are there now for men and women to ordain and practice and that should, you know, that's just take your chance whether you're a male or female just do it if you have that inclination you're ready to ordain or give it a go just do it (laughs) and you shouldn't be disappointed if you do it with a sincere heart because the quality of the teachings are so profound so good you'll only make more good karma for yourself like sometimes sometimes as I said, we get caught up in the superficial side of things and we say, well, women should have equal opportunity; you should have bhikkhunis. Well, it sounds like a good idea. But people can get so caught up in that side of it, the political side, the feminist side, that maybe they forget the practice. You know, I know I'm speaking as a man, so maybe I'm, I'm biased or limited in my out, outlook, but The the nuns I've met in Thailand, who are what we call eight precept nuns, they wear white, but they're dedicated to their practice. They've developed sila and samadhi and panya, and they've developed the the noble path just as well as any monk is possible. And there are good examples of of practitioners in Thailand in the past and and currently. So that means, you know, for those who really have faith, they just go off and they do it. They don't worry too much about the ideal conditions, the perfect conditions, they just do it. That's my observation. Uh, Question? Well, the main main purpose of Sila is to guide your conduct of body and speech so it's not harmful. You're not creating suffering for yourself and others. So if you know someone who's homosexual, don't make suffering for them. Don't give them a hard time. Be kind to them. You know, don't put them down or, or criticize them. If you're homosexual yourself don't use your sexuality to cause harm for yourself or others yeah so be compassionate to homosexuals, heterosexuals celibates whoever, (laughs) be compassionate to them depends doesn't it yeah, I know a lot of heterosexuals who have a lot of bad karma. So
1: <laughs>
0: homosexual, maybe there's some happy ones I don't know, but it's you know, sometimes I think because of politics and the media, sometimes all these issues become blown up into something very big and you know, it can become something we have a cause or a protest about. You know, if you as I say, if you're practicing the Dhamma, you just get on with it and don't cause problems for yourself or others. Don't harm yourself or others. So then these sort of issues start to fade. It doesn't really matter. You know, a homosexual can practice the Dhamma just the same as a heterosexual. Watch your speech, watch your actions. If you're a homosexual, well just have one partner. If you're a heterosexual, have one partner. Be honest, be kind in your relationships. It's the same principles. It doesn't change. You've got to get get to be mind, practice mindfulness. If you're homosexual, you've still got a body. You've got five candors. So be aware of your body. If you're heterosexual, be aware of your body. The nature of your body is impermanent. It's not self. These teachings don't change from person to person.
1: Or yourself. Right? Yeah. Okay. So what
0: what happens if you say that you are having a partner but you find that you're not actually happy? So then you have another one so you consider like
1: something Yeah, that's harm, harmful harmful. <laughs> <laughs>
0: one one part is already you can't really know that person, or you can't really fully love one person. You know, we might convince ourselves that we do, but we don't. Just one. You have two, it's even worse, isn't it?
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's just indulgence. We're following our desires. And you know, okay, get impatient with this person because they don't give me what I want, so I look for someone new. Step back and look at what's going on. The process of what's going on is that you're, you're just following your desires and you'll actually end up suffering more and more and more. Your trust for people, your warmth for people will get less if that's the way you carry on. If you keep changing partners, you, you won't find peace of mind. You won't find a s- successful, sustained relationship. You'll find, you know, you're impatient, you're more selfish, self-centered. That's just the way I, it seems to me. At the back, yeah. They lead other people practicing all night. (laughs) We need leaders. So the enlightened ones are the leaders. So Ajahn Chah was enlightened, so he used to sit up all night, meditate and give teaching regularly, all day as well. He was a great example of a human being, an awakened, enlightened human being who just gave to other people all the time. That's what enlightened people do, they give. They share, they give everything they know and their warmth, their compassion, their wisdom, they just give to others. There's many ways they can give, but they just give every day. Just to meet somebody who is, and not, we call them a noble one. You meet a noble one, they're a good example just to see, they're a good example to hear. Then maybe you help them, give them some food. Your merit is so strong when you make merit with a noble one. That good karma will help you for many, many lifetimes. So sometimes it's like the Arahant, the enlightened one, all they have to do is just be around and then people will benefit from them automatically. People will, if you feel peaceful. When you go to visit someone, say you visit... meet with an enlightened monk, you feel happy. There's no doubt about it. You sit there and you go, oh, (laughs) you feel happy here. All your troubles disappear, at least for one day. People say that all the time. Like We just um, cremated one of our teachers, Lumpur Blian. He was considered to be an enlightened teacher. In his monastery, every day people would go to see him and they'd sit. And some people they just sit, they don't ask any question, they just sit, look, listen. And they come out and they say, Wow, I just feel so peaceful, so happy. And they go home so happy. After a while, it wears off because they still have their clinging, their attachment. But at least for one day, they get a sense of what the peaceful mind is like. So when you're around enlightened beings, it's like that, you feel it. You feel something and then you learn something from them. and You get a good example. And the world needs that because there's very few enlightened people. Most of our examples are from people who are not enlightened, from celebrities, <laughs> politicians, you know, people in the media. We look at them and follow them and you know, talk about them, but they don't give us much of an example we should really focus more on the Noble Ones, the Sangha because they're giving us really long-term help. Mm Teaches a little bit, but not much. Pacheca Buddha won't actually start Buddhism. They won't start the wheel rolling in the way a normal samasam Buddha does. So they might be living somewhere quietly and you know, they're gonna eat, so people will offer them some food, maybe you know, come and meet them sometime. So there may be small numbers of people who meet them and they'll give them encouragement in their meditation, tell them to keep the precepts. But it won't be in a structured or formal way like a Sama, some Buddha. It's a very small scale, very quiet, very private. Unfortunately, if you read the commentaries, you know, some of the Pacheka Buddhas in the past, people didn't even realize that they're fully enlightened. So the Pacheka Buddha is maybe mistreated, chased away, insulted, because people didn't realize who they were meeting or talking to. And those people made very bad karma. So. Sometimes prateka buddhas are so quiet, they don't, nobody knows who they are, nobody's aware of them. Yeah, be, be cautious. When I was a young monk, one of the first teachings they said is always treat every monk, nun, spiritual practitioner you meet with respect. Be humble, and if you think maybe you're suspicious, maybe they're doing something wrong, well, never mind. Just look for the good in them. Respect the robes. You, know, you can respect the robes even if the person, you don't agree with them or like them. But never insult them or practice wrongly towards them because you never know you might make a mistake and you might be insulting a Bodhisattva or a Pateka Buddha or some, just someone with a lot of Bharami... We can't always judge others, we can't be sure. So better to play safe and just treat everyone with respect. And uh, don't put them down, don't be rude or nasty to them. Because if you, do, if you are, and it's to someone who's well practiced, then you make a lot of bad karma for yourself. One monk I often mention, Lumpur Jia, was a disciple of Lumpur Man. He became enlightened after four years as a monk. So, and he died only a few years ago. He was almost a hundred. So he was like an arahant for most of his life. But as a young man, he was brought up uh, <coughs> in Jantebury, and the port of Jantebury, and his family were fishermen. So he was brought up with in you know, a very kind of rough environment. Fishermen, you know, they go out to sea, come back. They swear a lot. They drink. You know. That was his background, was a very kind of rough background. So he always spoke very roughly, a very gruff, tough kind of person, but he was an arahant, And Lumpur Man really trusted him as a very wise monk. So later on he moved to near Bangkok, he had a monastery there. And Ajahn Mahabur was always reminding people not to look down on Lumpur just because he's very rough in his character. Because Lumpur he was like he liked to fix motorbikes. He's a, he a mechanic. So the village boys would drive their motorbike into the monastery and say, Lumpur, my bike is broken, can you help? You say sure, out of compassion. Fix that you know, someone would turn up and he's underneath the motorcycle with an oily rag fixing things. And uh, you know, sometimes when his students were a bit stubborn, you know, he'd punch them. <laughs> not not to, you know hurt them, but just to wake them up. and Say, "Oh, you're you're wrong!" Boom. <laughs> he knew what he was doing, obviously, but he had this rough side to him, and he would like one time he was he was coming back to the monastery from Chantaburi to Bangkok, and he was offered a lift, you know, in a, somebody's nice saloon car, but he didn't take it. He chose to hitch a ride on a truck delivering fish to Bangkok so he, he turned up his monastery sitting on top of this big articulated lorry everyone said Lumpur why are you up there and he just said well, I was just hanging out with my old friends so he had this really rough side to him and yet inside he's perfectly enlightened no greed no anger no delusion you know, what we all aspire to he had but on the outside he looked very rough coarse kind of guy so Lung, Ta Mahaboha called him a block of gold wrapped up in an oily rag. So sometimes you have to be careful, you know, if you just see the oily rag, you'll think Ugh, that's nothing and you won't be inspired or you won't respect it. But then you miss the block of gold inside. So some people are like that, you know, on the outside they're gruff, they're rough, but on the inside they're pure. Other people seem very pure on the outside. Good impression, but maybe on the inside is not at all pure. You know, there's, a, there's a mixture of people in society, and Buddhist monks are the same. So you have to be a little bit careful not to judge people too quickly make you know comments about, "Oh, this monk, that monk," because you know, you if you don't really know, then just just reserve your judgment is safer. Yeah, you you can have all the gold in the world, but if you still have greed, anger and delusion, it doesn't help you, does it? The real gold is the pure mind. Any other? Yeah, one here, yeah.
2: obviously I-
0: Try to be objective, like now they've gone, you can't change what's happened. It's sad, but if you've noticed, you're know, probably one of the biggest causes for people becoming so depressed that they become suicidal is drinking drugs. So learn from that, you know, don't, don't follow the same pathway, it's only going to take you that, that direction. You might not become suicidal, but it will take you towards more depression, despair, disappointment in your life. If you want to go to the way of happiness, clarity, peace, then avoid drinking drugs. It's a very simple kind of equation. Um, when you think of your friend, you know, if you ever meditate, or when you come here, you, when the monks are doing the chanting before the meal, just share your thoughts with your friend at that time. Wherever he is, may he find peace, may he be free from the suffering that got him to commit suicide and just always think of him in that way you you wish for him to improve to get out of his state of suffering because buddhism you know we believe when you die that's not the end of the story you go to your next life but the state of mind at death will be a huge factor in what happens next and so he almost certainly will be experiencing a lot of suffering now based on his act of suicide so you're wishing him to recover from that, to get up, up and out of his state of depression, despair. But the practical side for you is, you know, try to learn lessons. Say, well, that direction didn't get, bring him to any good. I have exactly the same story. I have friends who have ended up, you know, this is like 40 years ago, but ended up uh, committing suicide. And, and there's always drink and drugs is involved in the equation. So, just learn a lesson. Sometimes we have to be patient with our moods and the ups and downs of life. You know, when we go turn to drink and drugs, it's because usually because we're impatient. We just go for the short-term hit, the high. Often it's a social thing as well. Everyone else is doing it. We have to be strong and be patient and see the long-term advantages of keeping precepts and keeping your mind clear. And if you get out of the old habit of drink, drugs, whatever, then in the long run you're so happy you're free and you, you, your mind is clear. And then you have the resilience to deal with whatever stresses and problems come up in life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There are, in the time of the Buddha for sure, since then, maybe a few uh, that I know of in Thailand. I know in Sri Lanka there's a lot of people claiming many things. (laughs) Um, Sometimes you get the impression maybe they claim a bit too quickly or too easily. Um, They even have these meditation centers now where you can get your sodapana certificates <laughs> if if only it was e- as easy as getting a certificate you know <laughs> so again like we're talking about the monks you can't always be sure from the outside where someone's at their practice in a, it, where they're at in their practice but lay people are the same you 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 can't always be sure, but generally the people who practice well don't make claims, don't boast. It sort of seems to work out that way. So as soon as someone does claim that they are sotopana or enlightened, they usually get suspicious, because if you're truly peaceful and wise inside, you don't need to tell anyone about it. It's there, and you know it's there, and that's good enough. The sense of self-identity is gone when we're still practicing on a more superficial level, we still want the identity of being somebody who's practiced and attained. (coughs) And all of us will face this, it will come up. You know, I meditate many hours, I want to see some results, I want to be somebody, I want to be a good meditator, I want to have my insight, I want to be a Sotapanna or whatever. It'll come up, so be aware of that desire but then establish mindfulness and watch it, it's just a desire and don't cling to it and don't identify with it, don't build a whole new personality around being enlightened or a good meditator or good Buddhist. That's not the purpose of it, we're going further than that. So learn again go back to humility, letting go of any sense of pride and self that comes up as you're practicing and just learn to observe things arise and pass away. So you're peaceful, good. If you're not peaceful, okay, learn from that. If you're a Soda Panna, good. If you're not, fine. Don't make a big deal out of it in your mind. The way of the world is to make a big deal out of things, to identify, to always aspire, be ambitious, I've got to get this, get that. And this leads into a lot of delusion. And... Um, As far as lay people go, you know, in in Thailand, in the circle of forest monks, sometimes you hear about lay practitioners who have developed good samadhi and good insight. And uh, maybe if there's a teacher you know and trust who is saying, well, this person has really understood the Dhamma, well, there are a few people like that and you can trust in their judgment. Again, they keep it very, very private, like, just think about it. If you were if you were a sodapana or enlightened the last thing you'd want to do is tell the world about it <laughs> you get inundated with all kinds of people coming your way, you know, wanting to know you, find out about you compare with you, put you down whatever so, you know the people who gain gain insight and develop good practice often are very private about it you don't hear about them I know many monks and nuns like that lay people you just they're not public they don't write books they don't give talks on youtube or anything <laughs> they just do their practice because that's the purpose of it is to free your mind from suffering and you know some of them do come famous eventually but a lot of them don't and they just stay quietly practicing until they die and that's fine so you you don't always hear about them very much very suitable place very suitable place for the practice when there's a lot of suffering then you can practice you see the suffering you want to practice to get out of your suffering if everything is very comfortable you get lazy you give up it's like oh I'll enjoy my comfort I don't need to meditate anymore I've got enough I'm happy with what I've got that's like heaven or like living in a city where you've got salary money you, know, you you all go home at night from your work. You don't say, I'm going to meditate all night, do you? You say, I'm going to watch TV, have my food and go to sleep. <laughs> That's what comfort does to us. It makes us very dull and attached and lazy. Whereas somewhere like Bihar province, northern, northern India, it's poor. Every day is a struggle. So you, you're seeing Dhamma every day. You're seeing the suffering of life. There's disease, poverty, malnutrition beggars there are some people who are rich of course but it's the poorest part of india so it's very ripe for practicing meditation and insight into the four noble truths same as thailand you know most of the enlightened teachers not all but most have come from northeast thailand and it's the poorest part of thailand and they're all super tough because they're brought up they can They've got no furniture in their houses so they can sit on the floor all day long so they can meditate all day. They work the fields as kids so they can work or walk meditation all day if they have to. They can fast. They can put up with cold and heat. They can put up with no money, no medicines, no luxuries. So they make very good monks, very tough monks. It's harder if you're brought up in a comfortable environment, isn't it? You've got more to get let go of. You've got to get used to letting go of all this comfort, you know. If you you want to meditate, develop mindfulness, you've got to let go of everything. So if you're used to a nice comfy bed and food when you want and you've got entertainments and you've got your iPhone and you've got this and then that, there's more work to do, isn't it? So less arahants come from the city. You've got to ask yourself, do you want Sawana, do you want heaven, or do you want Nibbana? If you want Nibbana, you have to let go of everything. But most people still just want heaven. They want a heavenly rebirth. You want to be born somewhere where there's no problems, no one's going to give them any trouble, got every kind of nice comfort, nice food, nice place to live, good friends, everything really just how they like. That's what people want. But it's not Nibbāna, because they get attached to that. If you want to be really peaceful, you have to be able to let go of happiness and suffering. Don't attach to the happiness of life. Don't attach to pleasure, Sukkawetana. You have to let go of that as well. Most of us are not ready for that. We still want our happiness, our pleasures. There's so many things we feel we need to be happy and we want them. We're not ready to let them go. If you're truly mindful, you don't attach to either. Happiness, no. Suffering, no. Pleasure, no. Pain, no. You keep your mind in the middle. You don't attach to any any of it. That's the mind of the Arahant. doesn't mean to say you can't have pleasure, but you don't attach to it. That's tricky, that's that's hard work.
1: you any You do
0: You aim for truth know the truth and not be deluded by anything. Because happiness deludes us. That's why we cling to it. We say, oh, when I get this, I'll be fine. But then it doesn't last. And then we get a lot of suffering coming afterwards. And It's like, oh, but we're suffering again. Because we cling to it, we suffer. Both, both are equally problematic to us. Both pleasure and pain, happiness and suffering. We just want mindfulness and then wisdom which will see the true nature of things. Everything arises and ceases. Everything is not self. Mindfulness and wisdom is the way to Nibbana. Pleasure and happiness is like a false a false idea of peace or happiness. It's false. It's not going to give you lasting, perfect peace of mind. And Jinchar said it is like two ends of the snake. You pick a snake up, everyone will pick up the tail because they want to be away from the mouth. The tail is like happiness. You pick it up, but after a while, the mouth comes around and bites you anyway. Happiness is going to cause you suffering if you cling to it. So you just say, right, Whatever happens, I'm just going for nibbana. It's good enough. Pleasure, pain, doesn't matter. So you sit, a bit of pain in the legs, never mind, Nibbāna. Just,
2: <laughs>
0: just keep just keep sitting, sit through it, and be mindful of it, and don't cling to it. If you get you know, nice food, the food you like, or some your best friend took, took the piece of food you wanted and you didn't get it, just accept it, or go for Nibbāna, it's better. <laughs> Uh, Well, once you establish mindfulness, the purpose of it is to allow wise reflection to take place. And you train in every aspect of your life. You're starting to wisely reflect on what you're doing, what's happening. So, on a meditation retreat like this, you might begin, if we're doing sitting meditation, wisely reflecting on the breath, going in and out, you're observing the nature of the breath, how coarse, refined it is whether it's the mind is, uh, whether the breath is subtle and refined or very coarse, you're observing it, you know when it's coming in you know when it's going out, you're seeing it's impermanent and you're just wisely reflecting on what's going on rather than getting caught up into a whole train of thought about other things uh, and then you might Bring your attention to your body and wisely reflect on your body. Where where's this body come from? What's it made up of? And start investigating wisely the the body. Um, the same when you're walking meditation, your wise reflection. You're wisely reflecting as you walk along a path, back and forth, back and forth. You're observing the rising and ceasing of different kinds of phenomena so you see thoughts coming and going sounds feelings you know the breeze comes hear a sound of a bird wisely reflecting and just noticing oh sound arising ceasing feelings arising ceasing rather than getting caught into unwise reflection which is what kind of bird was that hmm do I know the name of that bird? I really like that bird. No, I hate that bird. You know, Starting to create a story about whatever it is you're experiencing. That would be unwise reflection where you're actually promoting or bringing up more attachment of one sort or another. Some greed, some irritation or aversion, some delusion. Wise reflection based with mindfulness is to cut through delusion. So it's to see the simple nature of phenomena that they're impermanent they're not self. So it literally you can apply it to anything, um, but on a retreat like this, it's particularly to your sitting and walking meditation and then the experiences you're having as you're doing that. Um, food is another one that the Buddha really encouraged us to wisely reflect on. Well, to wisely reflect on your food, first of all, you have to stop talking. <laughs> Most people will sit and chat to their friends, but you know, if you're really developing your practice... Just eat in silence. Be mindful of chewing, the tasting, how much you're eating, and wisely reflecting, you know, this food, where's it come from? Oh, somebody made this. You get thoughts of gratitude, maybe. This food I eat, how much do I need just to keep this body going for the rest of the day? What happens to the food? You know, even though it's tasty food, when it goes into my mouth, it becomes mixed with saliva, goes into the stomach, becomes... Unattractive, eventually most of it will pass out as excrement. That's wise reflection on the eating and the process of eating. Unwise reflection is, I like this, I want more of that, <laughs> I want this, I don't like that, who made that? Why did they do that? Yeah, you know, all the kind of reactions and moods we have is unwise reflection. So you're bringing mindfulness up and then wisely reflecting on eating, walking, sitting, any job of work you do, any activity you wear, wearing your clothes. You know, the Buddha said when you get get up in the morning, you put your clothes on, wisely reflect, why do I wear clothes? And most of us perhaps are thinking, Will this look good? Oh, it's a bit out of date, or you know, well, what do my friends think of this. But clothes are just there to keep you warm or protected from the weather, for a sense of modesty, because we can't walk naked. Wise reflection is bringing you that understanding, the purpose of clothes, the purpose of food, your house. What's the purpose of accommodation? It's just to protect you from the weather, keep you safe. That's wise reflection. Just bring your mind's attention back to the present moment, what you're engaged with, and reflecting on it wisely rather than always through reactions, clinging, moods, desires, liking and aversion. So it's a whole kind of training of the mind. Well, the time is one o'clock, so maybe I'll take a break there. And uh, we have, I think, 45 minutes, if I'm right, of walking meditation. And uh, can head up to the hall.